0: Love, talk Radio. Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand
1: on the shore of the ocean, watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean pulls, calls you to enter into deeper waters.
2: Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian apologetics and scholarship. I hope you all had a happy 4th of July, and we sure did, and my wife and I went to church cookout. We really enjoyed ourselves, although, uh, unfortunately, she's not the better for We had a little bit too much time before, and the lack of sunscreen leads to some pain, unfortunately. But, you know, we're going to make it through, and... When we are talking about the 4th of July, we are talking about the founding of our country here in America, and that's a subject of here debate. Was America founded as a Christian nation? Were our founders Christians, or did they just not want anything to do with religion? Were they a bunch of agnostics, atheists, and deists? Well, for a topic like that, I invited Bill Fortenberry to join me on the show. Now, who is he? where he is a project of Christian education, attended a Christian school from kindergarten through high school, and received a degree in education from Ambassador Baptist College. He never had to unlearn the secular humanism that permeates the American public school system, and that gives him a unique perspective from many of the topics being debated today and a passion to share that with others. He first began debating atheists and skeptics as a freshman in college and developed IncreasingLearning.com as a way to share discussions with other Christians. Soon he became an an online ministry specializing in the public defense of the Bible and its application to American society. Over the past several years, he's focused on political projects. He's written extensively on the biblical principles of good government, and his research for personhoodinitiative.com has made him a nationally recognized leader in the fight against abortion. He's published two books on America's founding fathers, Hidden Facts of the Founding... Era in 2012, and The Founders and the Myth of Theistic Rationalism in 2013. Both of these books showcase his signature style of making his arguments from original source material that is available to anyone with an internet connection. Nearly every footnote includes a link to the original publication on Google Books. Currently, he's working on a third book tracing the Christian history of the ideals from which, the basis of him, which formed the basis of American government. He's also working full-time in a small business startup, volunteering as a development director of Personhood Alabama, and running for office in his state's legislature. So, Bill, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be
2: here. Thank you. Now, that was a good academic entry, but I suspect a lot of people might not have heard about you. So, from a personal standpoint, how did you get to be doing what you're doing today? What's the Bill Fortenberry story?
0: Uh, well, I've just always had the philosophy that anything God opens the door for me to do, I should jump through it and try to do it.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: So as far as researching on the the founding fathers, uh, I just had a friend come up to me one day and say, hey, have you ever heard of this particular argument saying that our nation was a a secular nation? He gave me uh, a very lengthy argument against the Christian founding of America. And so I just started looking into it and wrote a little bit in response to that argument for my friend, and then realize, hey this is something that other people can benefit from too and started writing for other people as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Now we know from history of the Christians that uh, Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the dead and that's all we really have to establish, so really what difference does it make if we look at this question of is America founded on Christian principles or not?
0: Well, I guess in the long run, in light of eternity, it doesn't really matter a whole lot uh, from that, but it does matter to us quite a bit here in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the American court system, there's a principle called original intent. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: judges, when they try cases and they're wondering whether a particular law applies or whether that law is constitutional, they're required to investigate the original intent of the legislators who passed that law.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And based on that original intent, uh, they may give a a judgment one way or the other, depending on what that original intent was. Um, A good example is a famous case in our history, uh, the case Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: And this is the case where Justice Brewer wrote that America was founded as a Christian nation. The reason that he wrote that is because he said, quote, it is a familiar rule that a thing may be within the letter of the statute, yet not within the statute, because not within its spirit, nor within the intention of its makers. This has often been asserted, and the reports are full of cases illustrating its application. This is not the substitution of the will of the judge for that of the legislator, for frequently words of general meaning are used in a statute, words broad enough to include an act in question, and yet a consideration of the whole legislation or of the circumstances surrounding its enactment or of the absurd results which follow from giving such broad meaning to the words makes it unreasonable to believe that the legislator intended to include the particular act. Now what he was uh, judging at that particular time, the, the situation, is that there was a law in America banning indentured servitude and a church, the Church of the Holy Trinity, had contracted with a pastor in Europe and invited him to come over and speak in their church and so they paid for his way with the agreement that he would be the pastor of that particular church. And they they were sued and brought to court saying that they had made that pastor an indentured servant by paying his passage to America on the condition that he worked for them as as their pastor. And so Justice Brewer said there was nothing in the intent of the legislators who wrote that law to banish Christianity and banish uh, Christians from bringing pastors from overseas uh, to their church, to teach in their church. Mm-hmm. And so he looked at the intent of the founders, found out if this had been their intent, it would have gone against all of the other things that they had said about Christianity and how wonderful Christianity is.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And so the the original intent of the founders allowed him to tell the church, hey, you haven't broken the law. Yes, you broke the letter of the law, but you didn't break the intent of the law, so therefore there's no charge brought against you. And similar cases come up all the time uh, in America where the judges have to look at the intent of the law. We had one in Alabama here where I am, uh, just a couple years ago, where it was a case of chemical endangerment. And uh, the, the judges had to look at the intent of the legislators in writing the chemical endangerment law and say that law was intended to protect all human life. So even though that law didn't specifically say that it applied to unborn children, they said the intent of the legislators was to protect all human life uh, from the chemical endangerment laws. And so, therefore, this lady who had taken drugs while pregnant was in violation of that law based on its intent. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have examples of that all over the place. Uh, But it's real important when we interpret the Constitution and interpret the, the amendments, the Bill of Rights, that we understand the intent of the people who wrote those. And that's why it's important to study the Christian foundation of our nation.
2: Could that be something parallel to, for instance, a man is poured over for a speeding and driving for red lights, then he found, lo and behold, his wife is sitting next to him pregnant and going into labor, and we say, well, yeah, he's breaking the letter of the law, but surely the people who put the law did not intend for this kind of situation to count.
0: Right, yeah, it would be very similar to that.
2: Now, you said that in this case that it was said that that America was a Christian nation. What year was this?
0: Ah, uh, God let me! I have to look that up. I don't remember the the date of the Church of the Holy Trinity case. Mm-hmm. Let me find out real quick. It shouldn't take about a second. That was 1892 when that case was tried.
2: Yeah. So this is more than a hundred years after the founding and the idea is still going strong that America's a christian nation right well i say it's still going strong but maybe it didn't really start out that way you know because we often hear that the founding fathers were largely deist for instance before we go on with that point exactly could you explain to my audience what exactly is meant by a deist
0: sure a deist is someone that believes in the existence of god Uh, The the root word for deism is the uh, Latin word for God. Uh, So they believe in the existence of God, but they believe in a a God who created everything and started everything in motion and then just stepped back away from creation and now is just observing. Uh, Mm -hmm. He doesn't interact with his creation at all. Uh, He doesn't have any, there's no such thing as miracles, according to deists. There's no such thing as supernatural revelation, so for example, the Bible would not be the Word of God under their belief system,
2: mm-hmm. and, and, and no,
0: a, no special providence at all.
2: An excellent example of that would, in fact, be Thomas Jefferson and his Bible that he made, wouldn't it?
0: Uh, actually, no. Hmm. Um, Thomas Jefferson would not be classified as a deist oh. because he believed that God actually did interact with man. Hmm. Um, he believed that. There's a, a famous quote from where he talks about, "I tremble for my my country when I remember that that God is just and that His justice will not sleep forever."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he was saying that that God is going to judge America eventually if America doesn't straighten up. Well, mm-hmm. that's that's completely contrary to Deism. Right. Deism uh, believes that God never judges anyone; He's just off doing His own thing and doesn't really care about what we do.
2: Now, mm-hmm. at the same time, Thomas Jefferson. Based on some things I've heard about him. he definitely wasn't a Christian, though.
0: Yeah, I don't think he was a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I know that he believed himself to be a Christian. Right. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote in his writings, he wrote, I am a Christian in the only sense that he referred to Jesus, the only sense that he ever meant one to be, as a sincere follower of his doctrines. Mm-hmm. And so Jefferson studied the doctrines of Christ uh, quite, quite well and, and knew them very well. And tried to live according to the doctrines of Christ Now I don't think that he ever accepted That Christ died for his sins And was buried and rose again I don't think Jefferson ever accepted that We don't have anything written specifically On that uh, particular aspect of Christianity
2: I understand from it. Jefferson I understand that in his Bible for instance He cut out the miracles of Christ And the Gospels just end with a burial taking place
0: well, that is a common myth. Hmm. Um, that's that's something that people typically think of the Jefferson Bible, uh, but what Jefferson really did, he wasn't trying to make a Bible at all. Hmm. Uh, his goal was to create a compilation of the philosophy of Jesus, uh, and so he didn't really get into any of the supernatural aspects, but he was trying to get into uh, the philosophical underpinnings of Jesus' life, and he wanted people to follow the philosophy of Jesus, so it, It would be similar to someone creating a uh, synopsis of the philosophy of Plato Mm
1: -hmm. or
0: Cicero. That's what he did with the Bible. He went through and he he cut out all the sections that he thought were important to understanding the philosophy of Christ. And he put all those into their own book. Mm -hmm. And he actually did it in in four different languages, Mm -hmm. all side by side, so that he could read it in multiple languages, make sure he understood every aspect of Uh, Every
2: nuance of the philosophy of Christ Maybe it was the case then that the rest of the founding fathers Were like that also. They might have liked the philosophy of Christ But they didn't really accept a lot of the supernatural Per se, claims and such Isn't that likely the case that most of them didn't really believe in The miracles and things of that sort Uh, Well
0: I wouldn't say so I would say that Mm -hmm. Almost all of them believed in the existence of miracles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could probably take a few of them, like, for instance, uh, Ethan Allen. Mm-hmm. Although he didn't have anything to do with the structure of American government, uh, he was a very famous Revolutionary War general.
2: Green Mountain uh, and, Boys.
0: Right, mm-hmm. and he rejected the idea of miracles. Uh, he was he was very anti-Christian mm-hmm. uh, himself, and. There were a few people like that in America, but not very many. And all the founders that actually took part in creating the government would have all accepted the presence of miracles.
2: What reason do we have to think that?
0: Uh, Well, there's several quotes from different ones talking about it.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, For example, Benjamin Rush said that the Constitution being accepted by all the states was itself a miracle of God. Uh, George Washington said that uh, anyone who looked at the history of the revolution and did not see the hand of God working in that, uh, that they would have to be worse than an infidel to not believe in God after seeing the revolution and, and how God worked everything out in that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, John Adams actually, create, actually wrote an entire lengthy explanation justifying miracles and how miracles were reasonable to be, be believed in, and uh, wrote that to... Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I believe. Mm-hmm. That was in his in his diary, that's where he wrote that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could read that for you. He said, uh, quote, the, excuse me, the great and almighty author of nature, who at first established those rules which regulate the world, can as easily suspend those laws whenever his providence sees sufficient reason for such suspension. There can be no objection then to the miracles of Jesus Christ. Although some very thoughtfully Although some very thoughtful and contemplative men among the heathen attained a strong persuasion of the great principles of religion, yet the far greater number, having little time for uh, for speculation, gradually sunk into the grossest opinions and the grossest practices. Mm
1: -hmm. These,
0: therefore, could not be made to embrace the true religion until their attention was aroused by some astonishing and miraculous appearances. Mm -hmm. The reasoning of philosophers having nothing surprising in them could not overcome the force of prejudice, custom, passion, and bigotry. But Mm -hmm. when wise and virtuous men commissioned from heaven by miracles awakened men's attention to their reasonings, the force of truth made its way with ease to their minds. Mm -hmm. And so that was John Adams writing in his diary uh, an explanation for why miracles were allowed by God.
2: You know, some of those quotes like, Russian, Washington could say, well, maybe they have thought God was giving something But does that mean specifically the Christian God? I mean, maybe we're just talking about God in a generic sense Why I think that they were Christians?
0: Well, to understand whether the founders were Christians or not Of course, we have to go back to a basic definition of Christianity Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, uh, you know, of course, you know, as an, an apologist The basic definition of Christianity comes from the gospel. We can look it up in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Mm -hmm. where Paul talked about uh, the gospel that he preached to the Corinthians, and that if they believe that, they're Christians. And that gospel was simply that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And so in order to be a Christian, that was the one requirement given in the Bible to be a Christian. You had to believe in the sacrificial death of Christ, and he had to believe in his resurrection. And when we look at the founders, we can look at almost all of them. The one exception that I know of personally, you know, that I know of specifically, would be Thomas Jefferson. But uh, most of the others that I've looked at have actually had statements where they've admitted that Christ died for their sins and that he rose again and that they are trusting in that to get them to heaven.
2: How mm-hmm. about... Uh, Benjamin Franklin. He's usually seen as a deist by most people.
0: Yes, Franklin is very interesting to study. Um, I actually was challenged a little while ago by a quote that Franklin uh, wrote to, or a statement Franklin wrote to Ezra Stiles. Now, Ezra Stiles was the president of Yale University Mm -hmm. at that time, and Franklin wrote him a a letter uh, saying that he doubted a little bit of the whether or not Christ was God mm. and said so he doubted the deity of Christ. But he wasn't hundred percent sure of it. He just had some some few doubts on whether or not Jesus was was God. So they said, therefore Franklin was not a Christian. So I thought, well let me go back and, and read some of what Franklin wrote and I went you can find all of Franklin's writings in their entirety on the internet. And so I just started with his autobiography, starting with when he was a little kid. And I went forward through all of his writings all the way to the end of his life just looking for everything that he said uh, about God, about Jesus, about Christianity. And he has a, an interesting story. And as a young boy, his parents, he would have Christian parents, raised in a Christian home. His parents gave him some books that were refuting deism. And Franklin started studying this book, these books like his parents wanted him to. And he thought these arguments against deism are very poor arguments. And so he then left Christianity and left the teaching of his parents and became a deist. And he recorded in his autobiography, said, I soon became a committed deist. And that quote is given many times by historians. What most historians don't say is that shortly after that quote, he then... I mean, even in the same page, he then said that he soon found that doctrine that whether it might be true or not, it really wasn't very useful. Mm -hmm. And so he started doubting almost right away whether or not uh, deism was correct. And he spent some time in England, uh, and while he was in England, he tried to live out the principles of deism, which basically means do whatever you want to do because God doesn't care. And so he tried to live that way and he found that that was not a very good way to live, and he'd convinced some of his friends to live that way, and they, because they were just doing whatever they wanted to do, ended up going against him in several points and uh, mistreating him on several occasions, and so he decided this was not what he wanted. So when he came back to America, started searching and studying religion a little bit and trying to come up with his own religion, and he wrote a couple of articles, uh, one of them, In 1726, he wrote out his Articles of Belief, and it showed that he was kind of morphing from deism, but he hadn't really accepted the Bible as true, and didn't really agree with the biblical God. Uh, A couple years later, 1731, he wrote out the doctrine to be preached, and again, he's getting a little bit closer to the biblical God, but not really what the Bible describes as God. But he had by this time, he had completely abandoned his earlier conception of God as merely uh, the God, local God, over our solar system. That's what he originally thought about God in Articles of Belief. Uh, And so he abandoned that in 1731, had this idea of a a God who was the father of the whole universe, uh, but still not the biblical God. Mm -hmm. And then in 1732, a year later, he wrote on the providence of God and the government of the world, and there he argued for the intervention of God in the affairs of men. So this is a complete turn from deism. He now has decided that God does intervene in the affairs of men. And he's, Franklin's still a young man at this time. He's, he's a, a very young man here, developing his philosophy of theology. Uh, then shortly after that, he's now back in Philadelphia A new preacher came to Philadelphia named Samuel Hemphill, and Samuel Hemphill was a very fiery preacher. Uh, He was constantly telling the Christians in the church that they need to get right with God because they're just playing church, and Franklin liked that. He saw a lot of hypocrites in the church. He liked the fact that there was this preacher that was getting on to these hypocrites and telling them to get their hearts right and not just serve God in the outward appearance, but actually do everything that God commands them to do in the Bible. And so Franklin liked that. So he started attending the the messages that Samuel Hemphill preached. And he said in his autobiography that that he attended every single one of his sermons. Mm -hmm. And so Hemphill, though, kind of rubbed some people the wrong way, stepped on some toes. And he was brought to trial in an ecclesiastical court. Now remember, this is when America was a British colony. So you had a complete merger of church and state at that time. And so Hemphill was brought to court for some of the things that he had said. And it was a big trial, public trial of Hemphill, and it made news all across America and all the way over in England making big news. And Franklin decided he would write a defense of Samuel Hemphill. And in that defense, we can see that Franklin no longer accepted the ideas of de- theism, but now accepted full Christian doctrine.
1: Mm.
0: And uh, let me let me see if I can get the exact quote here. All right. In his third pamphlet in defending uh, Samuel Hemphill, Franklin wrote, Christ by his death and sufferings, has purchased for us those easy terms and conditions of our acceptance with God proposed in the gospel, to wit, faith and repentance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so here we have Franklin, the, supposedly the great deist, uh, saying that the way that we get acceptance with God is through Christ's death and suffering, and our faith in that and repentance from our own uh, ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so this is a, a complete turn from the deism that he had accepted as a young man uh, to now completely accepting Christianity. And from this point forward, what Franklin writes about uh, anything completely changes. Before this time, he never quoted scripture. And anything that he wrote before this time never quoted scripture. From this point forward, Franklin quoted scripture like crazy. I mean, he's constantly referring people back to the scripture. You go through the the poor Richard almanac, constantly referring to Scripture, all his letters, constantly referring to Scripture, and uh, it was a night and day change between what he wrote before meeting Samuel Hemphill and what he wrote after meeting Samuel Hemphill. So I'm convinced that Franklin accepted Christ as his Savior and became a Christian at that time, and uh, he he held to that. His uh, parents questioned his salvation, and he wrote to his, his parents and said, hey, look, I'm not believing uh, anything as far as uh, the idea that I can earn salvation with good works. Go see Matthew 26 and look what the Bible says there. That's what I believe. Uh, His sister wrote to him thinking that maybe Franklin was believing that good works would get him to heaven. And again, he wrote to his sister and said, no, 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 I don't believe that. I believe the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. My opinion on good works is the same as Jonathan Edwards. And he quoted her... Uh, a section from Jonathan Edwards' book on uh, thoughts concerning the present revival of religion in New England. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, just constantly telling people, no, I am, I do not believe that good works get me to heaven. I believe that you only get to heaven by faith in Christ and uh, defending his Christianity. So it's it's very surprising that people still say that Franklin was a deist all his life and that he was not a Christian. Cause it's, it's right there in his writings, clear as day. There was a Change, complete change in his view of the world in 1732 when Samuel Hemphill came to his town.
2: Yeah, I also think it's important to mention since you talked about the president of Yale at the time a little bit, but most of these colleges, in fact, back then were also founded as bastions of Christianity for a Christian education.
0: Right, yeah, every college in that area in the colonial time period and shortly after the revolution, all those colleges were designed to train ministers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they, they had a very biblically-based uh, educational system. And, of course, many of the founders attended those colleges mm-hmm. and uh, would have received proper training in the Bible and how to understand the Bible uh, from the the leaders of those colleges from the the ministers there.
2: I have heard that many of the signers of the Constitution and many of the founders, did in fact, have seminary degrees.
0: Um, that's that's a little iffy. You can't really prove that from mm-hmm. from the historical record. I've heard it too. Um, I don't like to actually hear that, and hear Christians rely on that, because mm-hmm. just because they went to that college doesn't necessarily mean that they were ordained into the ministry. Right. Uh, that was just the one source of Christian edu- or uh, secondary education that was available at that time was through these colleges, which had been started to train preachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they were graduates of many of those colleges, but they weren't necessarily preachers themselves.
2: Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, about Spoon. Was one who was a minister, right? Yes. Mm. Uh,
0: Witherspoon was a, a preacher, a very mm. prolific writer, uh, wrote many, mm. many of his sermons out. Uh, in fact, I have uh, one of his sermons where he completely ridiculed Thomas Paine <laughs> and uh, condemned Paine's pamphlet on uh, the pamphlet Common Sense, and he just, just completely ridiculed it and tore it down in one of his sermons. It's it's quite humorous to read.
2: We should talk about Thomas Paine some, because he's still a favorite one used by atheists today with books like The Age of Reason and Common Sense and such. What were his views?
0: Yeah, Paine's an interesting character. Uh, Many people think of Paine as an American, but uh, he wasn't really an American. Uh, Paine grew up in England He came to America as uh, a man in in his 20s, I believe, as when he came to America. He was sort of uh, adopted by Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush. They encouraged him to, to write and write in defense of the American cause. And common sense was not actually Payne's idea, the pamphlet Common Sense. Uh, He didn't write that on his own accord. He was asked to write that by Dr. Benjamin Rush. Now, Benjamin Rush was a very strong Christian. We've got a a clear testimony from him on salvation and uh, Mm -hmm. wrote prolifically in defense of Christianity. So Benjamin Rush asked Thomas Paine to write this pamphlet encouraging the revolution. That pamphlet became common sense. And Rush recorded in his autobiography or in his diary that Payne would come to him and read the pages in front of him and get his approval before proceeding to each section so common sense is very different from the other writings that Thomas Paine wrote and that's the reason why because you had a strong Christian uh, overseeing the writing of common sense and mm-hmm. throughout common sense if you ever take the time to read it Paine quotes the scripture quite a bit and refers to uh, the Old Testament refers to the Jews and their leaders and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you don't see that in his other writings. In fact, you get to Age of Reason and he completely rejects the idea of supernatural revelation entirely and have, wants nothing to do with Scripture. Uh, so Paine wrote Common Sense. Common Sense was, was very well received. Uh, was distributed, of course, throughout the colonies and, and everyone read it. And, a lot of people say that that's what started the revolution, which isn't exactly true. There were several other things that were more important than Payne's Common Sense, but we can get to that in a little bit. But after doing that, and writing a couple of additional uh, pamphlets and stuff in support of the revolution, after the revolution was over, Paine left America. So he was only here for a short little while, wrote Common Sense and some other uh, pamphlets about the revolution. And then he left and he went to France. And in France, he helped with the French Revolution. And so he, in France, is when he really started telling people that he didn't believe in God. And he didn't believe in, in, the Christian, in Christianity at all and in the scriptures or anything like that. That's when he wrote Age of Reason, all because of the, the French Revolution. Of course, the French Revolution was very godless, very atheistic, and pain was very much at home in that environment interesting thing is, he was at one point arrested by the French and thrown into jail, and he tried to get uh, Governor Morris, who was over there at the time, tried to get him to get Payne, Payne tried to get Morris to get him out of jail, in the French jail, and said, you need to tell these French people that I'm an American citizen, and they need to let me out of jail because I'm an American citizen. And Morris wrote back to his superiors in America and told him about that and he said, I think it's better he just rots in jail. <laughs> he said, I don't think he's even a, could be qualified as an American and certainly he's writing this stuff against Jesus Christ. We don't want him. We should just let him rot in jail. And so they did. They let, left pain to rot in the French jail and eventually he got out. Uh, and when he came to America after getting out, he was completely ostracized. No one wanted him. Uh, he died a pauper. Uh, No one even knows where his grave is to this day because they buried him and then no one really uh, wanted him buried. He was dug up by one of his friends and taken his body, taken back to England, never even reinterred in England. No one knows what happened to his body. Mm. Uh, So he kind of died in in ignominy and uh, was not really the hero that a lot of atheists and deists make him out to be.
2: And there were certainly a lot of replies, I'm sure, to his more atheistic and anti-Christian work of the time, weren't there?
0: Yes, there were. Um, Elias Boudinot, one of our founding fathers, uh, wrote The Age of Revelation in response to Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. That's the one that I like the most, uh, but there were several other founders that wrote against his Age of Reason. Mm-hmm. But Boudinot his work is, is phenomenal. Uh, he does a great job defending uh, the Trinity, defending Christianity, and defending the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, uses goes all through history and and just a, a great apologetics work defending Christianity.
2: Now I haven't told about the founding fathers so that many of them were in fact the members of very Orthodox churches back in their day. Is that accurate? Uh
0: yes it is. Uh most of them were.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh you by far the majority there are a few that were not. Uh mm-hmm. John Adams was not. He was a member of a Unitarian church. Mm-hmm. Uh but uh, of course Jefferson was not a, a member of a an orthodox church. Mm-hmm. Uh Franklin was not a member of any particular church. He he just attended all the churches in his town and gave money to all of them and, and attended them just whenever he felt like it. So those those few were not members of Orthodox Church. The others were by far, and of course you mentioned Witherspoon, uh, who was a, a pastor himself.
2: Mm-hmm. Now those who were though, being a churchman back then, understand, wasn't a small thing. You had to really sign on to the creeds. Before you'd be accepted and the creeds had to be Orthodox entirely so if you were a church member you would be a, been seen as a Christian right
0: uh, you would have been seen as a Christian back then mm-hmm. if you were a church member yes because you did have to agree to those creeds and, mm-hmm. and at least publicly state them right mm-hmm. uh, now at that time that was a time of of transition Unitarianism was really rising up in America and in England, too, at that time. So there were a lot of people who said the creeds outwardly and then in their writings would tell each other that they didn't really believe the creeds. Mm -hmm. Um, And you had to be, of course, during that time you had the established church, so you had to be a church member in order to hold office. So there were a lot of people that would go to the church and they would swear the oath to uh, claim that they believed the creeds just so that they could get in office, and hold political office and get in power, uh, whereas they didn't believe it at all. Now, I don't believe that's true of the, the founders, mm-hmm. but that is that was a common practice back then, and that's actually one of the reasons, one of the arguments given by the founders as to why we should not have the uh, religious test clause in the Constitution. They said, we've got all these examples of these men coming in and swearing oaths to these doctrines of beliefs and not believing them at all. But all they did is just swear that oath so that they could get into office. Mm-hmm. So they said there's no point in having a religious test for office.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but but I would say that most of the founders actually believe those creeds. Many of them wrote uh, quite a bit about their belief in, in the Savior and their belief in the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were, there were a few that didn't, but most of them did
2: Now, I think it's interesting to mention holding a, a, a religious position as a requirement I did used to live in North Carolina and somewhere in their state constitution it says No man may come to office who does not hold the belief in Almighty God
0: Right, Yeah. many of the state constitutions had that In fact, all, all of the state constitutions, if I'm not mistaken, had that at the beginning uh, where you were required to have a certain belief in God in order to hold office in the state, mm-hmm. uh, the First Amendment, of course, well the Constitution itself, with the no religious test clause, and then the First Amendment also uh, prevented that in the national government, but it did not apply to the state governments, and the state governments continued to allow that for nearly a hundred years after the founding.
2: Why was that so important to them?
0: Well, the founders believed and and many people even today believe accurately that you cannot be a good uh, ruler over people if you don't know God himself and you, don't, you aren't a child of his and a follower of what God says. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible tells that tells us that in the scriptures where it talks about how rulers are supposed to be uh, people that fear God. And you can't fear God if you're an atheist or a deist. Uh, because those people think that there is no God to fear. Anything you mm-hmm. want to do is acceptable. If you want to lie, that's fine. You can lie. You want to steal, you can steal. You want to cheat, you can cheat, whatever. Um, and so there's no constraint on them in order to stop them from, from lying and using their position to hurt people.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, more about the idea also then that all of us would have to do even more or as well, that the early founders of America thought that God was necessary to provide a moral foundation for the government. I think of a quote, for instance, if men were angels, there would be no need of government.
0: Right. Yes, that that would be very true of all the the founders, that they all believed that you had to have a belief in God in order to properly uh, govern any type of society.
2: Mm-hmm. I've uh, even heard it said that uh, Harold O.J. Wilson, I think he wrote about this in his book, The Sensate Culture, said that our branch, known as the legislative branch of government, was called legislative instead of lawmaking because the founders did not see themselves as making laws, they saw themselves as passing on laws that were already there.
0: That's a good point to to make there, that um, Mm -hmm. the laws of nature and of nature's God, of course, are permanent, and they can't be changed by governments. Uh, Mm -hmm. When governments do that, when they change those laws, they then become tyrannical, and a tyrannical government is no government at all. Mm -hmm. And that would have been the prominent uh, viewpoint in America at the time, is that once a government goes against the laws that God has said, then that government ceases to be the rightful government.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and that was actually the basis for the separation from England, was that the English government was breaking the law of God, mm-hmm. and the law that God had set up in nature, and mm-hmm. that therefore the American people were justified in not obeying what the British government told them to do.
2: Now You said that some states did have clauses in their constitution which we found that you had to be a theist at least to hold office but that was un- that was not the case of a national level we're usually told at the national level that hey we've got this uh, establishment of a separation of church and state the establishment clause in the first amendment what are we to make of that? yeah
0: the uh, the whole separation of church and state thing is an interesting study mm-hmm. Um, separation of church and state does not mean what most people think of today. Most people think of um, freedom from religion. You have the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Dan
1: that's Barker. what they think
0: of when they think of separation of church and state, that it's it's mm-hmm. a freedom from the influence of religion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that's not what they were after at as, as the founding. They were after keeping the government out of the church, not keeping the church out of the government. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when they set up the separation church and state, the point there was to keep the government from interfering with the, the churches.
1: Mm-hmm. It wasn't
0: to keep the churches from influencing the government in any way. Uh, let me pull up an article I wrote just recently uh, on that topic. Mm-hmm. All right. An establishment of religion is what is prohibited by the First Amendment. And when people talk about the establishment of religion, that's not just anything that has to do with religion. That, that phrase, establishment of religion, had a very particular meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bishop Chandler, Thomas Bradbury Chandler, uh, was one of the men who advocated for establishment of religion. He wasn't opposed to it. He wanted an established religion. He defined it as an established religion is a religion which the civil authority engages not only to protect but to support, and a religion that is not provided for by the civil authority, that which is left to itself or to subsist on the provision it has already made can be no more than a tolerated religion. So he had two extremes. An established religion is one that the civil authority, the government, uh, not only protected but also supported. So financial support is the key there and then the religion that the government did not provide financial support for, but they just left it on its own, you can raise your own support and your own funding, that was a tolerated religion. And you can look at at several different definitions. You also have uh, uh, Warburton, another fellow who wrote about the separation church, or the established church, William Warburton, Mm -hmm. uh, defended the established church, and again, he said that The key there is whether or not the government is supporting, with financial support, the religion. Mm -hmm. And so with an established church, an established religion is a religion that uh, the government actually funds. And so when they said there should be no law establishing religion, what they were saying is that the government should never fund a particular religion. So you can't take your tax dollars and say all of your tax dollars are going to pay the salaries for all these ministers for this Mm -hmm. particular church. That's what was done in England with the Anglican church. If you were an Anglican minister, uh, your salary did not come from your church taking up an offering and giving you a portion of that. Your salary came from the government. You were a government employee uh, fully funded by the government to go and preach to your congregation. Mm -hmm. That's what the founders were opposed to. They weren't opposed to... They were not opposed to pastors you know, becoming governors and becoming uh, legislators or even a president and governing in accordance with what the Bible teaches. They were only opposed to the federal government having a church that it paid all the salaries for.
2: Mm-hmm. But isn't it the case that when we began expanding to the West that government funds were used in the evangelism of the Indians?
0: Uh, yeah, they, there's some dispute on that. Um, on the surface, yes, they, they did. There's the secularists argue back that they were just paying for things that they had already, the government had destroyed when they wrongly uh, attacked those Indians. mm mm-hmm uh you know there there may be some merit to those arguments there may not be. Uh, I think it's just a moot point yeah, but when, when you that... actually look into the words used and see what what was used and what was really meant by the uh founders, then there's no need to get into stuff like that um one One thing that a lot of people like to quote and it's quoted by court cases all the time uh is Thomas Jefferson's use of uh, the phrase a wall of separation between church and state right. And, in fact, in the the famous case McCollum versus Board of Education, uh, Justice Frankfurter said, separation means separation, not something less. Jefferson's metaphor in describing the relation between church and state speaks of a wall of separation, not a fine line easily overstepped. And it's interesting, many people don't realize that when Jefferson used the phrase wall of separation, he was writing to a church congregation, the Danbury Baptist, Mm -hmm. and he was using language that they would understand and identify with right away. The phrase, Wall of Separation, is a phrase that has a very lengthy history in the Judeo-Christian worldview, Mm -hmm. and it was a phrase often used during the 1800s, or the 18th century, 1700s. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It is a reference to the wall which separated between the Jewish and Gentile worshippers in the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, Paul refers to this in Ephesians 2.14. He talks about um, the wall of partition, the middle wall of partition that Christ removed when he died on the cross. I talk about now there's no separation between Jews and Gentiles. They're completely the same in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, uh, neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek or barbarian in Christ. Uh, So, you see this phrase used several times, this idea of a wall of separation used often by Christian writers in the 18th century. Um, Philip Doddridge was one that used this phrase in the Family Expositor. He wrote, speaking of Christ, for he is the procurer of our peace who hath reconciled us, whether Jews or Gentiles, to God and to each other, and hath so incorporated us into one church that it may be properly said, he hath made both one as to an interest in the favor of God and in the privileges of his people that, people that no difference might remain between us. He has thrown down the middle wall of separation which divided us from each other as the wall which runs between the court of the Gentiles and that of Israel in the temple at Jerusalem divided the Gentile worshippers from the Jewish. So here's that phrase, the wall of separation. Uh, and so you can see that again. In 1740, it appeared in James Durham's Dying Man's Testament of the Church of Scotland. Um, he again used the phrase "the wall of separation." Um, I'll just—I've got all this on online. People can read the actual quotes. But 1790, it was used again. Uh, Sir Francis Bacon used the phrase uh, as an analogy of the separation between England and Scotland, and he talked about. Uh, king James, when he became king of both England and Scotland, tearing down the wall of separation between England and Scotland. And so the the wall of separation was even used by Benjamin Franklin once uh, to talk about the imaginary boundary between fresh water and salt water at the mouth of a river. Uh, he said, in such cases, the salt water comes up the river and meets the fresh in that part where if there were a wall or bank of earth across from side to side, the river would form a lake fuller indeed at some times than at others, according to seasons, but whose evaporation would one time or another be equal to its supply. When the communication between two kinds of water is open, this supposed wall of separation may be conceived as an immovable one, which is not only pushed some miles higher up the river by every flood tide from the sea and carried down again every tide of ebb, uh, but which has even this space of vibration removed nearer to the sea in wet season, when the springs and brooks in the upper county are, are upper country, sorry, are augmented by the falling rains, so mm. as to swell the river and farther from the sea in dry seasons. So Franklin even used the same phrase, a wall of separation, talking about the boundary between freshwater and salt water at the mouth of a river. Mm. So the historical understanding of this phrase that Jefferson used when he wrote of the wall of separation between church and state uh, was referring to a was not referring to a completely impassable barrier as Justice Frankfurt uh, presented in McCollum versus Board of Education. Well, Jefferson was using a commonly understood phrase to describe the fact that the First Amendment prevented the church and state from achieving a complete union in America.
1: Mm-hmm. They would
0: always remain distinct entities. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like the law of separation in the temple was to separate Jewish believers and Gentile believers from mixing, it didn't separate them from... Interacting with each other, just kept them from mixing and becoming one. Mm -hmm. Uh, This wall of separation between fresh water and salt water merely meant that there was a distinction. You had fresh water, you had salt water. They weren't mixed in together. They weren't the same thing and become one. So when you have the wall of separation between church and state, it just means the church and the state are two completely uh, Mm -hmm. unique entities. They aren't one combined total entity of, of church and state together like it was in england
1: mm-hmm. so
0: it's not the the complete separation where they they never interact and they never have anything to do with each other it just means they're not completely unified that's all that the term means
2: pretty much what you were saying is there's not going to be any marriage between church and government
0: right and see in a marriage there's not going to be a christian marriage between church and government mm-hmm. because in a christian marriage the two become one. They become one flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that will not happen, between, it should not happen in America, where religion and government become one.
1: Mm-hmm. They can
0: still be together, still spend time together, still interact with each other, but they're never to become one and the same thing. That's all Jefferson was talking about with the law of separation of church and state.
2: In fact, what he was writing was, in fact, assuring a church that the government wasn't going to take them over instead of saying, the church is going to take over the government. Right, right. And didn't he also, he wrote that, I think, on a Friday, and the very next Sunday, he held worship services in the White House, didn't he?
0: Uh, Yeah, he would have held worship services with uh, uh, Jonathan Leland Mm -hmm. as the pastor. Jonathan Leland was a Baptist pastor. Leland was a strong advocate of the idea of separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. And Leland was preaching in the chamber of the House of Representatives that Sunday, and Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson attended that service. Mm -hmm. So here you have two very strong advocates for separation of church and state uh, holding a a church service in a government building Mm -hmm. right after Jefferson wrote that letter.
2: And it never would have crossed any of our minds whatsoever but they were somehow violating the very tenet they were defending
0: Right, because mm-hmm. even though they held the church service in the House of Representatives they were not by doing that saying that the church and the state are one body mm-hmm. They were still two separate bodies, they were just interacting at that time
2: yeah, They were
0: still separate
2: In fact, we as Christians, we should want and encourage that kind of separation of church and state, because while we want our country to be a Christian nation, moral leader, follow biblical principles of living and such, we don't want it to become a theocracy where you have to be a Christian to be a citizen. We we do want people to be free to have oh, whatever religion they want or no religion if that's what they want.
0: Right, and that in itself is a Christian principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that idea was actually developed by the Baptist. Um, And the Baptists have had that from from ancient times going all the way back uh, to the the Paulicians back in the the 8th century. And and even earlier before that, the the Baptists were constantly talking about the separation of church and state, how the the two should not be one body but two separate bodies interacting. And when they came to America, of course, you had uh, the colony of Rhode Island was settled by Baptists. And it was settled specifically because there was not a separation of church and state in the other colonies. And so the Baptists were being persecuted and being banished from those other colonies. Mm -hmm. So they left and they started their own colony. Mm -hmm. And they petitioned King Charles uh, to have a charter allowing them to have no established religion in their colony. And Charles agreed to it and allowed them to do that. And... They had the first government since the, the fall of the ancient nation of Tepres. Uh The Baptists had the first government that had a complete separation of church and state. Now, even the ancient nation of Tuprius, it was a Baptist nation mm-hmm. uh, in the, the region of Turkey uh, back in, it would have been about, about the 800s AD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but George Bancroft, one of the famous historians of America of time past, uh, wrote that, the idea of separation of church and state, he called it the trophy of the Baptist. and mm-hmm. so that, That's always been their their goal, is mm-hmm. to have a separation of church and state.
2: Now when we look to the way the founders formed the government, <coughs> that's a, John Locke played a very influential role, didn't he? Uh,
0: he did. Uh, John Locke was, was very influential. Uh, so was a guy by the name of Algernon Sidney. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montesquieu, the Baron of Montesquieu, was influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, uh, someone that most people don't think of and never heard of is a guy by the name of James Harrington. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were some of the men that were the most influential on in our founders in the, the founding of our government.
2: Mm-hmm. So, What role did Christianity play in their setting up of the government?
0: Well, just by listing those men, all of those men believed that governments should be founded based on what was taught in the Bible. Uh, Many people think of John Locke as advocating a secular government. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you hear people talk about Locke and and how he was an Enlightenment author and the founders followed him rather than following the Bible, they only cite Locke's second treatise on government. Locke wrote two treatises on government. Mm -hmm. They cite his second one where Locke didn't really quote Scripture a whole lot. But they never cite his first one because his first treatise on government was filled with references to scripture and arguing for uh, popular sovereignty and arguing for uh, the right of resistance and uh, public elections, all that, from the scriptures. And so the founders didn't just read the second treatise of Locke's, Locke on government. They read both treatises on government mm-hmm. and uh, saw that Locke advocated following the Bible. Uh, same thing with Sydney. Algernon Sidney wrote about the same time as Locke, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Sidney was actually put to death for his beliefs uh, about a popular government and how government should be of the people and by the people and for the people. Uh, so he was actually tried in England and, and put to death as a result of that. Uh, but he wrote at the same time as, as John Locke did. And again, Sidney constantly was going back to the scriptures saying, this is what the Hebrew government was, this is what we should do. Uh, and in fact, he actually said that the, the Hebrew government uh, had the, the king, the Sanhedrin, and the body of the people. And mm-hmm. that those were the three branches of the Hebrew government, and that all governments should be modeled after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming from him, you go to Montesquieu. Montesquieu, of course, is writing in France. And he, again, said that Christianity is the best type of religion for a government to follow. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm.
0: Montesquieu actually compared Muslim governments and Christian governments and said that the Christian nations have a far better government than the Muslim nations and is directly the result of their beliefs and their religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the most interesting one is James Harrington, <coughs> Harrington actually wrote an entire book on the commonwealth of Israel. Now, the word commonwealth is not used much nowadays. It is the same word as republic. Mm It means the same thing. It's a, a republican form of government. He wrote an entire book on the republic of ancient Israel. His book was extremely influential on John Adams. John Adams wrote the book, A Defense of the Constitutions of the United States of America. And... That was a defense, not of the national constitutions, but of all the different state constitutions, which John Adams personally had a hand in in writing many of them. He personally wrote the Massachusetts Constitution. Other states saw that and asked him to consult on their constitutions. So then when Adams traveled to Europe, they were asking him in Europe, you know, why in the world did y'all do this in your constitutions in, in Massachusetts and the other states? And why did you do the other thing over here? So he wrote a book defending the state constitutions and explaining where the sources came from. Mm -hmm. And he quoted Harrington uh, extensively, uh, in particular quoted him talking about the Republic of ancient Israel. Mm -hmm. And so uh, even those those men, Locke, Sidney, Montesquieu, and Harrington, they all wrote from a Christian perspective and said that government should be based on the Bible. So even when the founders were quoting them and saying, we, we like what these people said about government, they were saying, we like the principles of Christian government that was advocated by these men.
2: We are we're here at the halfway point now of our show. So Rosa, see, I can remind you that I'm Nick Peters and this is the Deeper Waters podcast. And you're listening to Bill Fortenberry this week. We're talking about the founding of America as a Christian nation. But if you're listening next week, we got a big one for you. We're having one of our favorite guests come back and family on my part. My father-in-law, Michael Lacona, will be our guest again. And He's going to be talking about his research on the Gospels and Plutarch and how that relates to the doctrine of inerrancy. It's been a big debate lately, and this is going to be a show you're definitely going to want to be a part of, to listen and absorb all you can because there's been a lot of questions about it. but next week if you're listening Mike Lacona will be back here once again now we're going to return to Bill Fortenberry and talk about the founding of the Fathers. now you mentioned something in there about the comparison of the Christian nations and the Muslim nations and I think this is a good time to bring up that there is a treaty known as the Treaty of Tripoli that was made with a Muslim nation if I'm remembering correctly that explicitly says that in Article 11 that America is not a Christian nation
0: yeah the Treaty of Tripoli gets brought up quite a lot Uh, Mm -hmm. anytime that you talk about America's Christian nation you're discussing it with uh, atheists or agnostics they're going to take you back to the Treaty of Tripoli and it does in, in Article 11 does say America was not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's several things about uh, this treaty that a lot of people don't know. Uh, Very seldom, when I've had that brought up to me by by different atheists, I'll I'll ask them questions about it. Very seldom do they know anything about it.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, But the most important thing to, to remember about the Treaty of Tripoli is that it doesn't actually say that the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not part of the treaty. What that is, Article 11 has those words in the English translation, uh, but Article 11 was not part of the treaty. It was a letter from the day of Algiers written to the Pasha of Tripoli encouraging him to pursue friendly relations with the Americans. And so, in the Treaty of Tripoli, that we've got the Barbary pirates, these are Muslim pirates from Tripoli that are attacking our ships, our merchant mm-hmm. ships, and America doesn't have a navy at this time. Mm-hmm. And so our merchantmen are being attacked. We don't have the protection of England, of course, because we're not part of the, the British Empire anymore. And they're being attacked, they're being conscripted into to service as slaves uh, to the Muslims. And so John Adams and George Washington tried this idea of let's just mm-hmm. negotiate and we can, we can pay them whatever they want us to pay them and keep our men safe
1: mm-hmm. that way.
0: And So they, they tried that and they sent ambassadors over into the Muslim nations. One of those ambassadors was a guy by the name of Joel Barlow. And Barlow uh, was uh, negotiating this treaty with the Pasha of Tripoli. And he couldn't get the king of Tripoli, the Pasha, he could not get him to agree to the treaty because the the Pasha was saying that, as Muslims, we're, we're against all infidels. Well, the king of Algiers, the day of Algiers, he had already signed a treaty with America. Mm-hmm. And so what Barlow did is he said, hey, what if I can get you the assurance from the day of Algiers that it's okay to sign a treaty with America? Will you sign the treaty then? So the, the Pasha agreed Barlow got communication with the Day of Algiers, let him know that he needed a letter to the Pasha of Tripoli saying it was okay to sign a treaty with America. The Day of Algiers sent that letter and that letter is crucial to the passage of the treaty, the acceptance of the treaty by the Pasha of Tripoli. But it was not anything written by an American. It was not anything that Americans voted on. Uh, That letter was just... An addendum to the treaty, sort of like at the end of the treaty, there's also a receipt for all the things that we had to pay in order to get the treaty. We had to give them so many ships and so many uh, tons of wood and and so many uh, Spanish, uh, so much Spanish bullion and all that kind of stuff that we had to give them. Uh, That's all recorded in the, the treaty also, but it's not. Uh, that's all, the receipt is in the treaty, but it's not actually part of the treaty itself. It's just included in the book because it was part of getting it passed and accepted. So that's what Article 11 is. Article 11 is just a letter written from the day of Algiers to the Pasha of Tripoli. And in that letter, one of the translations of it says that, the letter says that there's no, uh, the government of America is not established on the Christian religion. Mm -hmm. But that was not voted on by the, the Senate. It was not, approved by America at all but let's just say that it was even if even if that had been said by uh, the Senate and by the the president at the time of course the president at the time is John Adams he was one of the founders but if you look at the Senate which they're the ones that have to approve treaties
1: mm-hmm. there was
0: only one founding father who was in the Senate at that time at the time that that treaty was passed mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh got his name here somewhere and I, I can't find it right in my notes real quick. I think it was Blunt, I think was his name. Not a major founding father, just uh, one of the founding fathers was in the Senate at that time. Other than that, none of the founders were members of the Senate during this time. So you couldn't look at that treaty and say, this is the idea of the founders that America was not uh, founded as a Christian nation mm-hmm. because none of the founders were even there to vote on it except for one.
2: Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, some, it could even be said that the government wasn't found because the government isn't the same thing as the nation. We don't live in a theocracy, so the government doesn't have to be explicitly Christian, but the nation itself can be Christian.
0: Yeah, you could make that argument. Um, that's, that's certainly a valid argument to, to present,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that the government is not a Christian government, but the people are a Christian people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's actually been used uh, many times. Of, that uh, not just about the Treaty of Tripoli, but just about America in general. Many people will say that America is not a Christian government, but we are a Christian
2: nation. Mm-hmm. Now we do have a uh, also in contrast that we've got treaties that were ratified by the government, such as the Treaty of Paris, that do contain explicit Christian references, don't we?
0: Yes. Um, now, the, the Treaty of Paris, many people will argue against that and say that that's just the language that uh, was used at the time by uh, the nations like England and France and that America wasn't necessarily agreeing to that particular use of language. It's just what was put in front of them when they had to sign it. Um, I mean, you could argue both ways on that one, but... Uh, if you use the Treaty of Paris as a contrast to the Treaty of Tripoli, that's the kind of response that you would get back.
2: Mhm. what is it that the Treaty of Paris does say and do you do you think it does reflect the Christian understanding of our nation?
0: Uh the Treaty of Paris mentions the Trinity mm-hmm. and the the Holy Trinity. Uh I would say that, that there was not a single person who signed it that disagreed with that. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, there was no one in the as a founding father who was involved in the Treaty of Paris who had any problem with uh, the treaty saying that there was a Trinity.
2: Mhm. Now, before we start talking about the Treaty of Tripoli, so as we we're talking about the uh, role of a Bible in the in the forming of a government and the constitution and such, what about references, for instance, such as the reference to the Creator that we have in, say, the Declaration of Independence. How would that have been understood?
0: Well, the reference to the Creator could only have been understood as a reference to Mm -hmm. uh, God who had created everything according to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually a much stronger statement about God, uh, not just in that part, Mm -hmm. but when you get to Uh, Well, let me just read here. We have, When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Of course, these are the opening words from the Declaration of Independence. This is written by Thomas Jefferson.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, The phrase there, the laws of nature and nature's God, uh, is another phrase that is very often misunderstood nowadays. Okay. Now, it's important to note, Jefferson did not talk about the law of nature and of nature's God, but rather the laws, plural, of Mm -hmm. nature and nature's God. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: During the the 18th century and, and even the 17th century, Uh, there was this idea that there were two laws given by God. Mm -hmm. One law was given in nature with natural uh, laws like the laws of physics and and stuff like that, things that you could discover by observing nature. Those were the law of nature. And then you had the law that was given in the Bible. and That was the law of God. And you can see this all throughout the writings of the uh, 18th century where people refer to uh, not just the the law of nature, but also the law of nature, a voice of God in nature, and a voice of God in the Bible. Um, you have the, the Scots magazine published in 1700, so this is you know 75 years before the Declaration of Independence was even thought of.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The author of that article described a man who was, quote, deaf to the voice of nature speaking within him, and to the voice of nature's God, and so you yeah, have Jefferson was very, very heavily influenced by a guy by the name of bolingbroke, and in a letter from many people even say this this phrase, the law of nature nature's God, that Jefferson was referring to Bolingbroke Lord Bolingbroke over in England, uh, in a renowned letter to Alexander Pope which when where people find this, Lord Bolingbroke wrote. Quote, you will find that it is the modest, not the presumptuous inquirer who makes a real and safe progress in the discovery of divine truths. One follows nature and nature's God. That is, he follows God in his works and in his word. And almost every historian will say, point to that statement by Bolingbroke and say, that's where Jefferson got this phrase of the laws of nature and nature's God. He got it from Bolingbroke right here. And in this particular phrase from Bolingbroke, he says that this is following God in his works, meaning the natural world, and in his word, meaning the Bible. So when Jefferson referenced uh, the station, separate and equal station, to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them,
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: he is referring to the station that God allows nations to have just by the law of nature and what you see around you, but also, according to the Bible, God allows nations to do this mm-hmm. So you have a direct reference to the Christian God, not just to a generic uh, deistic type of God But this, the Declaration of Independence is speaking specifically about the Christian God and the Bible
2: mm-hmm. And after the uh, revolution, was when, what role did the Bible play in the start of American society?
0: Well, the Bible is figured very heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the, the major points of American jurisprudence and American the American legal system, all of them have precedent in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the People don't think of it today. We, we've kind of got this idea that in ancient Israel they just had either a theocracy or they had a monarchy. Uh, we don't think of Israel as having a republican form of government. Uh, But when you actually go back into the Bible and look at it, you find that God constantly mentions the principles of republican government. They don't use the word republican government uh, in the Bible, but the the principles are there. And strongly emphasized for Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, You can go back even to the very beginning when God presented the Mosaic Covenant to Israel. If you go to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, we have, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. And here we have an if-then statement in the Mosaic Covenant. Mm-hmm. If you will obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure to me above all the people. And God actually put this to a vote to the children of Israel, and the whole congregation voted to be the people of God. He didn't force it on them. He didn't say, okay, I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who did this. Therefore, you have to worship me, and you have to follow my laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, he presented his laws to them and left it up to them for a vote.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I mean, you can see it. Several things throughout the scripture see that. Um, one of the one of the evidences in historical apologetics to say that the uh, statements in the Pentateuch were actually written during the time period when they were supposed to have been written. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the evidences of that is the fact that the law of God is given in the form of a suzerainty treaty. Right. This was a common form of treaty used by the Hittite nation, for example, uh, during that time period in the region of Palestine. So it wasn't used very much after that time period. It wasn't used very much before that time period. But right then at the time period of the Exodus, this was a very common form of treaty.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so many people have noticed that this is the type of format that uh, the Pentateuch is written in. In this type of treaty relationship, the suzerainty treaty, it's caused a suzerainty treaty because the word suzerain means sovereign. Uh, you have two sovereigns that form a treaty in this treaty, a greater sovereign and a lesser sovereign. Mm-hmm. And um, when they come together, neither one loses their sovereignty. They both remain sovereign. It's just that they agree for one of them to submit under the other for a particular uh, length of time for a particular purpose. And so when God formed this treaty with the children of Israel, in order for him to do that, the children of Israel as a whole, the congregation, had to be sovereign. So you had popular sovereignty of the Israelites in the very form of the treaty that God assigned with, uh, signed with them in the Mosaic Covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you go to um, if you go to Exodus chapter 24
1: mm-hmm.
0: and verses 3 through 7, mm-hmm. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning, built an altar under the hill on the twelve pillars according to twelve tribes of Israel. And we read down a little further and we read, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, "All that the Lord has said, we will do, and be obedient." And so, after Moses received the law, he brought it to the people, read it to them, had them vote on it. And they agreed to abide by it. And then he said, "Well, let me write it all down. I'll read it again. Make sure what I wrote down is what you agreed to." Did that, and again, they voted on it, and said, "We'll do that."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I mean, you can that that establishes popular sovereignty, and you can see that throughout the scriptures. Popular election. Uh, was also established, you had the election of the elders of Israel in uh, Exodus chapter 18, you had the election of the, uh, the princes of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, Numbers chapter 11 again talks about the election of the elders of Israel, and on and on and on throughout there you have constant elections that are taking place in Israel. Even the kings themselves uh, were elected. To power Uh, King Saul for example Many people think that God just pointed out Saul And said this is who I want to be the king Well God did point out Saul uh, Used lots And they drew lots and, And came up to Saul And Samuel the prophet Told the people This is the one that God has chosen But if you read that section in the scripture The people then went home They didn't anoint Saul king And choose for him to be king People said how can this man lead us and they left, and they didn't have Saul king. And it wasn't until Saul, uh, you know, a couple of days later won a major battle, then the people said, hey, you know what, maybe we should follow this guy. And they came back together, and then they anointed him king and crowned him king. Mm-hmm. So even though God had chosen Saul, uh, he wasn't made king until the people voted and decided on So these principles of, of popular sovereignty and the, the idea of, of resisting tyrants, uh, that's all throughout the scripture. But it's not just in Scripture, but all throughout the history of philosophy, Christian philosophers have recognized those, going from, I mean, starting all the way back with the the first generation uh, of the church fathers, going up through Augustine, then going up through Aquinas, and then uh, all the way up into the Enlightenment era Christians with Locke and Sidney and, and Harrington. And then you had the fathers themselves, the um, founding fathers themselves talking about it, you have all the men that preached to the founding fathers again talking about these principles, all of them saying, this goes back to the Bible, these principles of republican government are from the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so that that culminated in America, and America was the first uh, nation since the nation of Israel to actually put all that into government and establish a Christian-based or biblically-based government for their nation.
2: Well, you're listening right now, everyone, to the Deeper Waters podcast, and I can remind you at this point that everything we do here is listener-supported. Any work I do it's supported by you, and if you're noticing that the, the show isn't coming up regularly, that you're not able to make your calls and ask our experts questions right now, it's because the funds weren't there. So if you want that to change... One of the best ways to do it is to start becoming a regular supporter of Deeper Waters. You can do that by going to deeperwaters.wordpress.com, which is my blog. And there's a donate button on the side. And if you go there, you can, it'll take you to Risen Jesus, the ministry of Michael Cohen. Just tell him, hey, I want to make a donation to Nick Peters. I want to make a donation to Deeper Waters. Or even better, I want to become a monthly donor. And if you do that that you will be kept track of and we will make sure that every penny of your donation goes to us and that that will also be tax deductible and once you know also I've got some books out on kinder including the latest one defining inerrancy certainly hope you pick that up and we've got from a blog the Amazon store that I've got set up where you can buy books that I recommend and some proceeds from each of those purchases will go to Supporting Deeper Waters. In fact, we've got Bill Fortenberry's books from Kinder in there now. Looking like in the tab of books on the podcast, and you can go there, and if you buy the books from there, well, we get a small percentage of that. Now, Bill, is there any cause that you would like people to donate to?
0: Uh, yeah, actually, the, uh, the group that I'm involved in right now is Personhood Alabama. It's personhoodalabama.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we are is a, a pro-life advocacy group. Uh, we are attempting to end abortion in the state of Alabama. There's other personhood groups all across the nation. Uh, for every state has their own their own group. But in in personhood, Alabama, uh, we are seeking to get an amendment passed to our state constitution that will declare unborn children to be persons under the law. Uh, in Roe v. Wade, Justice Blackman, in the final decision of Roe v. Wade, he said that if this idea of personhood is established, the, the appellants, um, the abortions case, of course, collapses. For the fetus right to life would then be guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. And this was stated very clearly in Roe v. Wade that if the unborn child is established by the laws of the state to be a person, then that child's right to life is guaranteed by the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So we're trying to get that passed in the state of Alabama. If we do that, immediately abortion becomes illegal. So mm. uh, we, need a, we need a good bit of support to do that. We need to uh, hire someone to do some full-time lobbying with us. Uh, so, yeah, if, if people would like to help out with that, that would be great if they could just go to personhoodalabama.com and click on the Donate tab.
2: We are certainly encouraging them to be doing that, and I hope you will do that. Now, let's go also to a a favorite of the internet atheist crowd who you've responded to since you said that our nation's government is founded on biblical laws. Well, Richard Carrier says they're founded on the laws of Solon. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, uh, Carrier is an interesting character. Mm Um yeah he he came up with this idea this article that he wrote claiming that America was not written on the Ten Commandments but rather was written on uh, the Ten Commandments of Solon. Solon was a philosopher in, in ancient Greek a, a leader in uh, in ancient Greece and uh it's interesting because carrier praises Solon and carrier is uh quite well known for denying the existence of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And there's far more evidence that Jesus existed than there is evidence that Solon even existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have nothing from the time period of Solon that proves that he actually existed. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have some statements from several hundred years later, 400 years removed or so, uh, saying that there is this guy named Solon. But we have nothing from his time period, no first-hand evidence that Solon ever existed.
2: Mm-hmm. But, so let's suppose, for the sake of argument, oh, that Solon does exist, and Carrier's got some quotes here where he says that according to John Adams that Christianity isn't the foundation of the government, it's Solon's laws.
0: Right, yeah, if we, if we look at what John Adams said, one of the things John Adams said the first first thing he said about Solon, is that it is not possible to ascertain exactly which laws were his, Mm -hmm. um, or what was, in fact, the Constitution of Athens, which is where Solon was. So Adams said, we have no idea, but let's just take what is said, uh, mostly about Solon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adams was very critical of Solon. One of the things he said was, at the same time, there were 10,000 freemen, consisting of foreigners and freed slaves and 400,000 souls in actual bondage who had no vote in the assembly of the people. And Mm -hmm. so Adams criticized Solomon because in Athens, the majority of the population was not allowed to vote Mm because they were considered slaves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then he criticized them because in in Athens, uh, quote, the title of king was preserved to the high priest. So, the person presiding over the religion of each tribe was called Philobasileus, which is the king's friend,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and was always appointed from among the nobly born Eupatridae. Thus, religion was always in the hands of the aristocratical part of the community. So the king and the priest were the same person. So mm-hmm. you had a complete merger of church and state in ancient Athens, so there was no separation church and state, which, Carrier is 100% in favor of the separation church and state, mm-hmm. and yet you didn't have that in ancient Athens.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then uh, Adams, John Adams, even blamed Solon for the ruin of the entire nation of Athens. He said he put all power into the hands least capable of properly using it, and accordingly, these by uniting altered the constitution at their pleasure and brought on the ruin of the nation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so Adams was extremely critical. Of Solon and of the government he established now he did have some praise for him and Solon did do some things if all the story is true he did do some things that are that are good uh, but he made many many mistakes and Adams was very quick to point those out um, now it's interesting that carrier is quoting from what Adams wrote in the, the defense of the constitutions of the United States in this same book Adams of course quotes Harrington, James Harrington, and everything that James Harrington said about ancient Israel and how ancient Israel had a republican government.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so Adams had nothing but uh, admiration for the government of ancient Israel and mm-hmm. went on and on, quoted Harrington, quoted Sidney. Um, Adams quoted Sidney as saying, and if I should undertake to say there never was a good government in the world that did not consist of the three simple species of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, I think I may make it good. This at least is certain. The government of the Hebrews, instituted by God, had a judge, the great Sanhedrin, and the general assemblies of the people. And so here we have Adams quoting Algernon Sydney, talking about the government of the ancient Hebrews and how it was, a three-part government with a judge, the Sanhedrin, and then the Assemblies of the People's Separation of Powers. Mm-hmm. And uh, quoted, of course, Sidney Harrington quoted Lap. Um, and then even in that same book, uh, the, the publications of, the, of Adams' book on the defense of the constitutions, uh, it's not published in its own book right now. It's published in a book of the works of John Adams. And in the fourth chapter of that book, Adams wrote, if, as Harrington says, the Ten Commandments were voted by the people of Israel and have been enacted as laws by all other nations, and if we should presume to say that nations had a civil right to repeal them, no nation would think proper to repeal the fifth, which enjoins honor to parents. Mm
1: -hmm. And so here we
0: have Adams recognizing the probability that the Ten Commandments were adopted by Israel through a popular vote and that those same commandments have been part of the foundation of all other legal codes, and that it would be presumptuous to say that any ra- nation had a right to repeal those commandments. And so, just from this one quote, Adams completely destroyed Carrier's entire argument.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so it's a, it's a somewhat humorous argument that he makes, but it's, it's become very popular among atheists, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, your blog response to him, in fact, is entitled, deceitful or just plain dumb.
0: Right. Right.
2: What what do you think's really going on there?
0: I uh, I think it's intentional deceit myself. Mm-hmm. Um I, I've seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of historians just come right out and make statements that that they know are false.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I mean
0: if if they read their own writings, they can know that they're false. And I recently accused a Christian historian uh, Greg Fraser, who writes on the Founding Fathers for Masters College with uh, John MacArthur's College, mm-hmm. and uh, and says that the founders were were not Christians, and he has this term theistic rationalism that he says they were theistic rationalists. Uh, but I mean, he made statements about Benjamin Franklin saying that Franklin uh, always used the term Jesus of Nazareth and never referred to Jesus as Jesus Christ. And I showed him from his own writings that. Franklin referred to uh, Jesus you know, about, about 14 times that, that we have record of where he used the, either the name Jesus or the, the name Christ. And almost all the time he referred to him as Jesus Christ. He only referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth once, and that was in a letter to Ezra Stiles. And he used the phrase Jesus of Nazareth in that letter because he was responding to Ezra Stiles who used the term Jesus of Nazareth in the question that he had asked Benjamin Franklin. Stiles had written to Franklin and said, I want to know what you think of Jesus of Nazareth. So Franklin wrote back and said, as to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire. And that's the only time they used the phrase Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, uh, Greg Fraser was was saying, this this is evidence that Franklin was not a Christian because he never referred to Jesus as Christ. He always referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth. But um, I wrote back to Greg and showed him, even in, in his own writings,
2: mm-hmm.
0: he quotes Franklin as referring to Jesus as Jesus of Christ as Jesus Christ, and not just Jesus of Nazareth.
2: I understand that from your work, Mac, that Carrier was, was even thinking of having this be put in a book by a certain atheist. You would probably like me to mention his name on here, but I think I forego that in the atheist community online would probably just eat their stuff up. And not really look at the original writings, really.
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's very rare for someone to actually take the time and look up the original sources of these quotes about mm-hmm. the founding fathers, and that that's unfortunate. That's that's just the way Americans are nowadays. They they don't want to take the time to mm-hmm. uh, look up the history behind what they're saying. They want to just give these quick little sound bites and argue from those.
2: Now, in your writings. You do in fact point to on Google Books every time, or nearly every time, where people can find these quotes that you're giving so they can go and look and say, yeah, he's staying within the context, that is what the guy is saying, right?
0: Yeah, that's that's one of the main differences between what I do and say like what David Barton does. Uh, Mm -hmm. Barton has a lot of very good quotes, but the problem is that his sources are all to books that are uh, rare books that he has in his personal library, and it's very difficult for someone to look up his quotes and make sure that he's quoting them correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my all of my works, I wanted to make mm-hmm. sure that anyone who referenced my work could do so with full reliance and full trust that I was correct. And so, I based all my, my quotations. I found places Available online where you can read the original context of the quote Mm -hmm. In Many cases it's on Google books, which has been a huge blessing to uh, Christians to be able to get all these books that are available online Mm -hmm. And available for free and many cases these are outdated books that are no longer uh, printed But the ones that I quote are usually books that are written while the founders were still alive and they would be compilations of the Founders' uh, works, like the works of John Adams or the, the writings of George Washington or something like that. And I give a link to those in all of my books so that people can look it up in the original statement, the original context, and know for sure that I'm quoting this person correctly.
2: In fact, this whole time when you've mentioned a book, I've gone straight to Amazon and looked it up, and many times you can find these kinds of books on Kindle for free.
0: Right. Yes, they they are available for free on Kindle in almost every case.
2: Now, when we getting back to the case of the Bible in America's founding, didn't Congress also issue a printing of a Bible?
0: Uh, yeah, that is a reference to the Aiken Bible. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Congress did give their approval to that, and they did. Uh, the people in the different congressmen did provide some funding for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's debate over whether or not Congress actually uh, wanted that Bible, you know, as in they requested it. It was it was Thomas Aiken going to them and and asking them for money, and they they agreed to support it and and give some money to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Barton has a, quite a bit about that, David Barton, and you know people can can see what he says about it. I'd, I don't really get into that a whole lot myself, just because it's it's disputed as to whether or not it has any meaning to um, the founding.
2: You know, the founders, though, they were very interested in making sure that the average man was educated in learning about the Bible, weren't they?
0: Yes. Uh, for example, uh, Benjamin Rush would be be a good one to look at for that, and mm-hmm. uh, he was very interested in education and making sure that. Uh, everyone in America was able to get a quality education. And uh, one of the things that he said was necessary was to understand the Bible. In fact, you could not be considered educated, even if you were a, an atheist or a deist, you were not considered educated during that time period if you were not very familiar with the Bible and what the Bible said.
2: Mm-hmm. And this would even include in the public school system, wouldn't it?
0: Yes, yes. The, all, all education was supposed to be uh, inclusive of the teachings of the Bible. And it was, I mean, you, you have any anything that the founders wrote about education, they're going to write about teaching the morals of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Even with Thomas Jefferson, his whole purpose in creating the Jefferson Bible was so that he could teach people the philosophy of Christ.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, if we got started with this great run, and then we get up to even over 100 years later, and we've still got the United States as a Christian nation, where exactly did we go off a of beaten path?
0: Well, it's it's every time in our history that we have turned away from God. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not just right now yeah. uh, that we're doing that. Even while the founders were still alive, uh, you had people that were uh, as a culture, we were moving away from the principles of, of God mm-hmm. um, during John Adams' presidency, with the uh, the whole everything happening in France and the French Revolution and everything. Uh, many Americans kind of adopted the whole philosophy that was being taught in France, uh, that we should just have this idea of a, a deistic God and that the Bible doesn't really matter, it's not very important. That was that was mm-hmm. becoming very prominent, and many of the founders spoke out against that and very strongly spoke out against it and helped to turn our nation back towards God. And we've had several cycles uh, all throughout our history. The, the period preceding the Civil War was another one of those periods where uh, the the nation was turning away from God and, and getting into uh, beliefs that were contrary to Scripture. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and every time we've had men that have been good Christian men who have stood up and declared that what the nation is doing is wrong and that the nation needs to repent, we've had multiple revivals throughout our nation referred to many times as Great Awakenings mm-hmm. uh, that have been cases in which the, the average people have recognized that what these men are saying is true and that they need to come back to God. and they've just poured their hearts out to God in repentance, and God has worked mightily and brought our nation back from the the brink of destruction on many, many occasions throughout our past. Mm -hmm. And that could happen again now. The current path that we're on, you could say it started in the 20s, you could say it started in the 60s, depending on on who you talk to, which historian. Uh, But again, it's just people turning away from God, and when they turn away from God, they want to look for... Uh, Other sources for ideas on how to govern. And so they start looking at at humanistic ideas and secular philosophies. And it starts to permeate the government. And we just need people to stand up and say, what you're doing is wrong. And it's going to bring judgment on us. And call people to repent and turn back to God. And Lord willing, people will actually do that. and Recognize that what the leaders are saying is true. And repent and come back to God. And we'll see our nation again go back to the principles upon which it was founded
2: yeah, well, We're moving into the last 20 minutes of our show so let's do try and bring this up to what's going on today and Today we know that morally and in many other cases our country isn't what it should be and we seem to be losing that great American dream, the American exceptionism that we've had But I still hold the belief that this is still the greatest country on earth. I mean, do you agree with that?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, as bad as we are right now, we're still far and away better than any other nation on earth at the, at the moment.
2: Why do you think we are right now?
0: It's simply because of the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our heritage and, and the number of Christians that we have in America today uh, has brought the blessings of God upon us and. God doesn't like removing his blessings. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the nation of Israel, they would turn away from God, and it would be many, many generations before he would finally remove his hand and say, okay, that's enough. I've tried. Now I've got to let you you know, go through this particular judgment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and the same thing is true with America. I mean, God has blessed America greatly because of our reliance on him. And you know, we're going to eventually suffer judgment if we don't get things correct. But the reason that we're still the best nation on earth is simply because God hasn't completely withdrawn his hand from us.
2: Yeah, but what makes us so great?
0: Uh, what makes us so great would be the, the goodness of the people mm-hmm. that are in America. Mm. Uh, you have Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about that when he came through and uh, toured America and said, America is great because she is good. When America ceases to be good, she will cease to be great, mm-hmm. and that's that's still true today, just as like it was back then. When when the Christians, or when we lose Christians and people in America cease following God, uh, America will cease to be great. We will just become another <laughs> another statistic in the history books.
2: Readers on my blog know better. James White and I have had some interactions back and forth lately. And whether or not I respond to the last thing in the blog, I'm still debating on that one. and now more people tell me, "No, don't go, don't go ahead. You got other things to do." One thing you respond to what I said was how we need to reclaim academia for Christ. Like, okay, and how do you suppose propose to do that in a nation under the judgment of God? I think this is the same kind of thing. And I say. How do we propose to change things? One battle at a time. One heart at a time. I'm not going to look and say, our nation is under the judgment of God right now and we're in a hopeless situation then. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way that you change cultures is you change individuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't change a culture by going out and uh, forcing everyone to to change by laws and stuff like that. You, you have to change each individual heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that you change the individual hearts is uh, you go out and you talk to someone and convince them that Christianity is correct and that we need to follow Christ and follow mm-hmm. the teachings of the Bible. Lead that person to saving knowledge of Christ. Teach them to do that to others. Mm-hmm. And then you, know, you have one person doing it originally, then you have two, and then you have four, and then you have eight, and pretty soon the the entire nation Uh, Is people that are striving to serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take long if every single person will work on, if every single Christian will work on winning others. Uh, Many cases, though, we've lost that idea of winning other people to Christ. We want to discuss our different worldviews, and we want to show the atheists that they're wrong. But very seldom do we want the atheists to join us by becoming Christians themselves. And that needs to be our focus, is to have uh, these people who are currently uh, anti-Christian and against God, we want to have them converted as individuals and to care for them as individuals themselves, not just for this burden for our culture, but a burden for the actual individuals that are our opponents.
2: You know, some people will look at this and say, yeah, but I'm just really one person. Where exactly can I do? And what do I do politically to change things around?
0: Well, one person, for example, is one vote. Now, mm-hmm. Many elections are decided by, by just a few votes, sometimes even mm-hmm. as, as little as one vote.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that one person is very important. The whole idea of a Republican government is that every individual person is important? And
1: mm-hmm.
0: That every individual person counts. If you have people that that sit out and don't take an active part in the government, don't take an active part in the the political system, then the whichever side gets the most individuals involved is the side that's going to win.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There are far more Christians, at least professing Christians, in America today than there are of any other belief system, including uh, atheism or, or any other belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, if those Christians would get out and vote, and vote according to the Bible, we would have a much better government today than we actually do. The problem is that the Christians aren't getting out and voting, they're all deciding at home, hey, you know, it doesn't matter, uh, my vote doesn't count, the nation's going to hell in a handbasket, so why should I even bother? And They're just sitting at home not getting involved. Uh, And they think also, I'm just one person, it's no problem if I just sit at home. But if you get a million people all saying, I'm just one person, it doesn't matter, that makes a big difference. And the the, position our country is in now, politically, has a lot to do with individual Christians deciding, my vote doesn't matter, and and just staying home.
2: One thing I've... uh told before is that if anything could show us the power that Christians have, I'm thinking about two events in recent in our recent history. First off, when A&E decided they were going to pull a duck dynasty because of what one of the members said about homosexual behavior on there, Christians flooded their Facebook pages, they started a Facebook boycott page, and people were disconnecting the and saying hey we're not we're going we're to pay for KBAR if you're going to do this and eventually A&E relented, Cracker Barrel relented at the same time because Christians started to boycott Cracker Barrel then and said oh we can't do this and then recently uh, there was a show that HGTV decided to cancer because of the same views of, it, of the people who were hosting it and SunTrust said we're not going to support them and they issued that statement one day, then Christians immediately went and said, okay, we're porting our accounts. I mean, my mother-in-law does our taxes. I mean, she's a clergy tax accountant. And so I emailed her and said, switch on my accounts. And that's what we were going to do until SunTrust relented and then said, uh, okay. We're 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 gonna let them do that. Both of these showed Christians when they get out and they get angry and do something, Christians can change things.
0: Yeah, it's very true. Um, mm-hmm. another example of course would be Chick-fil-A with all oh, the yeah. support that the Christians showed them mm-hmm. uh, a couple years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, any any of those are, are good examples because those were just individuals
1: mm-hmm. deciding
0: on their own to mm-hmm. do something. Uh, it wasn't a huge organized movement. It was just individual Christians deciding that they were going to take some action and when all the individual Christians across the nation decided that, uh, things started happening for good.
2: I've written about some about this in a blog I called The Escapist Mentality, that Christians are supposed to go out there and be salt and light in our culture and change it, but instead we seem to retreat into our little safety bubbles often called churches and say, well as long as I'm saved, as long as my children are saved that's all that matters, we'll just sit back and wait for Jesus
0: Yeah, it's, that's unfortunate that that belief has become popular. It's, mm-hmm. it's certainly not what we find in the Bible.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, if, if there was a Christian who was listening and saying, hey I, I understand I like the idea of going out and voting and voting Christian, but what more could I do if I'm wanting to do more? Because I'm just sick of the way this country is and I want to do even more. What do you recommend?
0: I recommend running for office. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think every every Christian should struggle with whether or not God wants them to run for office. And I think that you should take every opportunity, and not necessarily for national office, but even yeah. for just the local office there in your, your city. Run for city council or uh, county commission or mm-hmm. you know, anything that, that you could be elected to. You know, if, If you elect the dog catcher, run for dog catcher. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Christians should be involved in government. I'm doing that myself. In my district, I I really don't think I have any hope, humanly speaking, of winning, but I don't have anyone running for my state representative, where I am, that is someone that I could support as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so I'm running as a write-in candidate, and I'm letting people know about it. And whether or not I actually win... I'm going to be getting people talking about Christian principles and how those apply to government, and Mm -hmm. I think that's the the key. Uh, Christians need to run for office, and many people think that they should run for office only if they have a chance of winning, but really you should run for office with the idea of using that election cycle as a means of getting people to talk about Christ and about the Bible and what the implication that has for government.
2: And isn't this also that part of the way, reason that our culture is such way because Christians also don't speak because they have this fear that they will offend someone who they speak to Yeah,
0: uh, that's that's something that a lot of people have but uh, I I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately I I haven't really been afraid of that myself <laughs> um, But uh, yeah, a lot of people are afraid of offending Mm-hmm. But the gospel is offensive, right? Uh, you know, Jesus said they persecuted me, and they're going to persecute you. And mm-hmm. You can't go through life as a Christian and mm-hmm. live as a, the way a Christian should without offending people. It, it's just impossible. It's like trying to set the air conditioner at a church. You know, you, you no matter what temperature you set the air conditioner at or the thermostat at, mm-hmm. you're going to have people complaining either way. So just find the the way that's correct and the Way, way that you think is best, and go on regardless of who gets offended.
2: Yeah, And would you agree that the reason that our nation is the way it is, is not because non-Christians have been acting like non-Christians, but it's because Christians have not been acting like Christians. The church has not been the church.
0: Yes, that, that would be very true. Um, in Israel, you'll find, Many cases in the Bible where it's mentioned that God mentions a remnant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, there's always a remnant that is following Him, and God determines how He's going to respond to the nation based on that remnant, not based on the the whole body.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's, it's based on that remnant. You have the, one of the first examples, of course, would be when God was going to wipe out Israel mm-hmm. and make a new nation just from Moses, mm-hmm. because this was right after giving the the Ten Commandments and everything from the mountain and the law that God wrote down for the nation of Israel. And and while he was doing that, they were down worshiping the golden idols. And and God said, I'm going to destroy the whole nation, start a new nation with Moses. And Moses fell on his face and begged God not to. And God changed his mind because of the one that was staying true to him rather than based on all the others who had turned away from him.
2: Mm -hmm. And so do you hold out hope then? despite how dark our country seems now, do you hold out hope that we can be great again?
0: Oh, we certainly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether we are or not, I still have hope that there's always going to be uh, a remnant in America and China and, you know, the darkest place of Africa, that, that God always has people there that are serving Him.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: our Lord's in control. It doesn't matter whether our government... Uh, is serving Him or not, whether our nation is completely destroyed or not uh, My peace isn't based on that. I mean I have hope that, that God can uh, save our nation and bring our nation back to Him but that's not what I'm hoping in as far as uh, for my peace and happiness here on earth
2: Well Bill, we've we got only about five minutes or so left in the show and so I'm sure you've got a whole lot more we could have talked about in such because there's no way to cover a topic this vast and just a couple of hours. If people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Do you have a blog or a website or anything they can access?
0: I do, yes. Um, My website is increasinglearning.com. Sounds good. And uh, they can go there and and access all of my articles. I've got several debates that I've had written debates with with various people. Uh, Those are all available on that website. Videos of some uh, teaching I've done in my church is available and just various things. Uh, I've got a blog there that Mm -hmm. uh, I try to write in regularly. I don't always succeed at that. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mm -hmm. all that's available at Uh, Mm increasinglearning.com. I also have pro-life research that I do, and that is on personhoodinitiative.com so those two are my my main websites, increasinglearning.com and personhoodinitiative.com.
2: Okay, we have about three and a half minutes to go. What final message would you like to leave for the Deepwater's audience?
0: Uh, Well, you know, I would just say that you need to be encouraged. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our nation was founded as a Christian nation. Uh, We can document that from history. We can point to that. Uh, But... Whether or not people accept that isn't the main thing. The main thing, of course, is teaching people about Christ and uh, winning souls for him.
2: And as we do that,
0: regardless of what they think of history, as we win more souls for Christ, our nation is going to turn back to those principles that we were founded on.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And so a lot of people get frustrated when they discuss with secularists or or atheists about our nation's history and and they don't have the resources that they need in order to prove that uh, we actually were founded as a Christian nation, they get frustrated and and don't want to continue talking with them. But uh, if that happens, just pursue or persevere and and keep talking about Christ. Try to win that person for Christ and their perspective will change. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we don't rest on whether or not our nation was a Christian nation. As Christians, that, that's that's a minor thing in light of eternity. And so I I take courage. All the times that I, I debate with uh, secularists and they don't agree with my point of view, I always take comfort in the fact that I'm presenting the gospel in everything that I'm doing. And regardless of what they think about history, they're getting the gospel from Uh, the information that I'm giving them, and that's
2: the important part. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill, it's been a fascinating program, and I want to thank you for coming on, and I really hope you've enjoyed yourself. We'll see you back here again sometime.
1: All right. Thank you.
2: And I'd like to remind everyone that I am Nick Peters. This is the Deeper Waters Podcast. Next week, Mike Lacona coming back, talking about Plutarch and the Gospels and inerrancy. It's going to be a fascinating show. For now, I'm Nick Peters, signing off.
0: It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite Rock Radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones and tablets the best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store, or get a link at our website, CYIWorldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Grok Radio point.